plan to limit asylum angers advocates, but a Texas Democrat with a border district says it's okay. You see this day after day after day, then I think you're going to have a very different perspective than somebody who's 1,500 miles away. For Sunday, February 26th, this is All Things Considered. Michelle Martin also. Those interest rate hikes are meant to help the country by slowing inflation, but are they hurting some more than others? Low-income individuals now are pretty much locked out of the market because they can't get into it given how much it's going to cost to finance that home. Plus, a year into Russia's invasion, we look back at a pivotal moment when Ukrainians first said no to puppet government and Australian singer-songwriter Jen Clower's new album, um, it's kind of spicy. First news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan says there would be real costs for China if it sends lethal aid to Russia in its war against Ukraine. And he says that war has put China in an awkward position. There was just a vote at the U.N. General Assembly in which China abstained. They did not vote with Russia. Uh, they were one of a number of countries that just tried to stand on the sidelines. When China talks rhetorically about the war in Ukraine, they, they tie themselves into knots because they know that going all in with Russia in this war in Ukraine would alienate a substantial number of countries that they are working hard to maintain good relations with. Speaking there on CNN's State of the Union, Russia's war in Ukraine is now in its second year. Belarus leader Viktor Lukashenko is headed to Beijing this week for a three-day visit where he'll meet with China's leader Xi Jinping. And Piers Emily Fang has more. On Tuesday, Viktor Lukashenko, one of the closest allies of Russia's Vladimir Putin, will head to Beijing. China upgraded its relationship with Belarus last fall. And earlier this weekend, China's foreign minister Qing Gong had a phone call with Belarus's foreign minister Sergei Elenik. Qing told his Belarusian counterpart China will, quote, oppose external interference in Belarus's internal affairs and illegal unilateral sanctions against the country. Lukashenko's visit comes the week after China released a position paper repeating a call for a ceasefire in Russia's war in Ukraine, and China's diplomat went to Moscow. China's leader Xi Jinping is reportedly planning a visit to Moscow soon. Emily Fang, NPR News, Taipei, Taiwan. After a bruising week, the worst since the start of the year, Wall Street will look for more clarity from the Federal Reserve about its fight against stubbornly high inflation. And here's David Gura has more. The latest inflation data came in hotter than Wall Street expected, leading investors to recalibrate their expectations for what the Federal Reserve will do next. There are more opportunities to hear from Fed policymakers in the coming days. Lately, they've been stressing their fight against high inflation is not over. Several big retailers are scheduled to report quarterly earnings this week, including Target on Tuesday and Nordstrom and Macy's on Thursday. Shares of the home improvement chain Lowe's fell by almost 5.5% last week after its rival Home Depot said it plans to implement a wage increase that's expected to cost the company about a billion dollars. David Gura, NPR News, New York. And the pandemic aid that boosted the Federal Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, will be cut this week, and millions of low-income people will lose money to put food on the table. This is food prices are on the rise because of high inflation. The aid ends March 1st in 32 states and the District of Columbia for the more than 40 million participants. You're listening to NPR News. 
From WBUR in Boston, I'm Josie Guarino. A landlord group is suing the city of Boston for records related to Mayor Michelle Wu's rent control proposal. Cambridge-based mass landlords say the city is denying them access to emails between the renter advocates, landlords, and developers on the group that helped shape the policy. The proposal would exempt new buildings from rent control for 15 years. A spokesperson for the city of Boston calls the lawsuit an attempt by special interests to stop the city from protecting residents from extreme and unaffordable rent increases. Mayor Wu hopes to restore some version of rent control policies, which have been banned in the city since 1994. Springfield area lawmakers led by Representative Bud Williams secured $50,000 for the Springfield Neighborhood Housing Services. The funds are earmarked to help the Springfield Agency continue its work to provide quality homebuyer education programs. The money is dispersed through the Department of Housing and Community Development. Representative Williams credits the Neighborhood Housing Agency with helping countless people transition into home ownership since it was established in 1978. The Boston City Council passed a resolution last week to declare the City Council would support designated Lunar New Year as an official holiday in the city. City Council President Ed Flynn's district includes Chinatown, and he represents the largest number of Asian American residents in the city. He says the Asian American community in Boston is often overlooked. We came together to celebrate the New Year, celebrate the enormous contributions and sacrifices of the Asian American community, but also to acknowledge the rise of hate crimes and anti-Asian racism here in Boston. Flynn is working with Mayor Wu's office to figure out the next steps and how any holiday could be celebrated both in Chinatown and citywide. There's snow heading our way tomorrow, a cloudy start. Then snow moves in sometime after 8 p.m. and continues into the overnight hours and into Tuesday. The Boston area could see 2 to 5 inches of snow, up to 8 inches for the Worcester area. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Wallace Foundation working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. We're going to start tonight by taking a look at a new rule the Biden administration is proposing that will make it harder to claim asylum in the U.S. The new rule will presume that migrants are ineligible for asylum if they cross illegally, don't ask for protection in countries they pass through, or notify U.S. authorities of their intention to seek asylum through a mobile app. Although the rule is still just a proposal, subject to public comment, and is supposed to expire after two years, it's still a marked change from the country's traditional policy toward those who say they're fleeing persecution. In the past, asylum seekers have been able to present themselves for asylum no matter how they got to the U.S. And it has infuriated pro-migrant advocates who say it is as inhumane as the previous administration's and unlawful, and they say they'll challenge it in court. Meanwhile, those who favor more restrictive immigration measures say it won't go far enough to stop the record number of people who've been coming across the southern border in recent months, straining the resources of the government and nonprofits alike. Immigration is one of this country's most complicated and divisive issues, so we wanted to hear from someone who often sees himself in the middle of these competing views. So we've called Congressman Henry Cuellar. He's a Democrat from Texas who represents the state's 28th congressional district, which includes parts of the U.S.-Mexico border. 
And he's been critical of how both Democrats and Republicans have dealt with this issue. He supports President Biden's rule change, and he says Democrats and Republicans need to do more to understand how the migrant crisis is affecting people living along the southern border. If somebody is 1,500 miles away, it is so easy for people to say, oh, yeah, let everybody in. But if you're a mayor, you're a county judge, you're a landowner, you're uh, somebody down here at the border, and you see this day after day after day, then I think you're going to have a very different perspective than somebody who's 1,500 miles away. So, you know, when I speak, I think I'm speaking for my communities where they're saying, look, you know, we just want to have order. So it is not a ban. It is just if you get invited, for example, to dinner at 6 o'clock, don't come in through the back door. Don't open up windows to go in. Don't show up at 3 o'clock in the morning. Just do it in a orderly process. We will respect that. Here's where the advocates would say your analogy breaks down, which is that people aren't being invited to dinner. They're fleeing for their lives, and there's a fundamental difference than that. And if you are fleeing from your life, you might, you know, knock on the door at 3 o'clock in the morning. So that's the argument here. What do you say to that? Well, of course, if somebody comes to your house and knocks at three o'clock in the morning and they're asking for help, of course, you're going to open up the door. Of course, you're going to help them. And this rule provides that. In other words, they're saying you come in through a port of entry or through the app and do it in an early process. If you come in between a port of entry, don't ask for asylum in another country. And keep in mind, Michelle, is the United States the only place that you can ask for asylum? If they wanted to seek asylum in Mexico, why they could seek asylum in Mexico. But if people want to come to the United States, I mean, doesn't immigration law, longstanding immigration law, allow people to seek refuge from persecution wherever they want to seek it? What I'm saying is, yes, they can come in. And under the proposed rule, there is an exception where if you don't, if you feel that there's immediate danger to you, rape, assault, human trafficking, or whatever the case, there is an exception where you can just come in. But otherwise, we're going to ask you to follow an orderly process. One of the arguments is that the politics of this are wrong for the Biden administration, that it alienates a key part of their base and it isn't going to do anything to appeal to people who don't support them already. It's not going to do anything to appeal to Republicans and it just alienates the pro-immigration Democrats. And I'm asking you, what is your take on that? If a person thinks that the immigration activists are the only part of the Democratic base, then I think they're wrong. I mean, yeah, they're important. I agree. They're a very important role. But like I've said, when we talk about the issues down here at the border, I've always said immigration activists are one, and I think the White House listened to them too long for one year without taking consideration to the men and women uh, down here that have so many families down here, and over 50% of the uh, Border Patrol agents are Hispanic. And then the most important one is Who's listening to the border communities? When a rule like this comes out, the media automatically goes to the immigration activists. Who uh, calls the border mayor in Webb County or in Star County or in El Paso or who calls the, uh, the county judges or the mayors or the sheriffs down here? Usually they don't. The first instinct by the media, and I'm not criticizing, I'm just saying it's because, you know, the, the, the immigration activists do a good job, but getting themselves in front of the media, they, they go to that, but they're leaving out communities uh, down here at the border. I, I should have mentioned that part of the administration's proposal is to lift the limits for people applying under temporary protected status from certain countries like Cuba, 
uh, Haiti, Nicaragua, and Venezuela who can then apply for temporary protected status if they have someone in the United States who can help sort of support them. Do you support that? You know, you can return some people that don't qualify for credible fear or asylum easier to a lot of countries. But there are countries where our relationships are not good, Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua, Haiti, you know, it's a different situation there, but it's included in there. Uh, so if the countries are not going to take them, then I think we need to figure out how we can try to help those folks, but still screen every person that comes in to make sure that there are no reasons for keeping them out. That is Congressman Henry Cuellar. He's a Democrat from Texas, and his district, the 28th, includes parts of the U.S.-Mexico border. We reached him in his Laredo office. Congressman Cuellar, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, and God bless you. We'll see you soon. We wanted to get some additional perspective about this proposed rule change. As we just heard, one of the elements is to get asylum seekers to seek protection in another country they've passed through on their journey. More often than not, that country is Mexico. So let's talk to James Frederick, a reporter in Mexico City who's been following the story on his end. James, thanks so much for joining us. It's my pleasure, Michelle. So we just heard from a U.S. lawmaker, a conservative Democrat, who supports this rule change. And we know that a lot of U.S. pro-immigration and civil rights advocates are very much against it. What has the response been so far in Mexico? Well, from the Mexican government, there hasn't been an official statement yet. Uh, This isn't a surprise. The rule, as we know, is months away from uh, when it could even take place. So we'll wait to hear on that. But um, as you say, advocates both in the U.S. and here in Mexico have been pretty outspoken against this. Um, Everyone I spoke to has been against it. Um, Here's what Dan Berlin from the International Rescue Committee said about it. Yeah, we were quite disappointed when the notice of the proposed rule came out. Uh, we believe that this proposed rule does not reflect the, the values that have been expressed by the, the U.S. government regarding asylum seekers and refugees and will result in a lot of people being excluded from international protection. Can you just tell me more about why migrants would not want to re- request asylum in a country like Mexico? Well, the first answer to that is that many do. Uh, Last year, Mexico got almost 120,000 asylum requests. Uh, Most of those came from people from Central America. Uh, But Mexico's refugee agency is severely underfunded and understaffed, and there really is not the same kind of infrastructure in Mexico to support asylum seekers like there is in the U.S., The other issue, of course, is that Mexico is not safe for everyone. Uh, I spoke to a Honduran asylum seeker yesterday who's in Ciudad Juarez with her 13-year-old son and 9-year-old daughter. They fled Honduras uh, because she had been threatened by a gang she and her son, and that's why they want to seek asylum in the United States. Um, That's also the reason she asked us not to use her name on air. And here's what she said about being in Mexico right now. Aquí en Ciudad Juarez... She says things are really difficult in Ciudad Juarez, that it's really dangerous, shelters are full, many migrants just have to live on the streets. She says they feel very unsafe in Mexico and would not want to request asylum there. Um, But these new limits on asylum would trap more people like her in places like Juarez, Tijuana, Reynosa, and organized crime uh, really takes advantage of people in these uh, uncertain situations. Another element of this new proposed rule is that would-be migrants would have to announce their intention to seek asylum using an app, which came out last month. Can you tell us, are you hearing anything about this app? 
everyone you talk to on the Mexican side of the border will talk to you about this app. It's called CBP One. It's like any other app. You go to the Apple Store, the Google Play Store, and download it. Um, and it's how you book an appointment, essentially, to request asylum. And let's listen to that uh, Honduran asylum seeker again, who knows this app very well by now. She says the first thing she does every morning is log on to the app to try to book an appointment. She's done this every single morning for more than a month for appointments that are uh, opened about two weeks ahead of time. The problem is uh, that she can sometimes get an appointment for one person, but she's not alone. She's with her two children, and every time she tries to book an appointment for three people, she gets an error message. I've heard complaints from everyone I've spoken to who's used the app. So before we let you go, what else are you hearing from the advocates in, in Mexico that you've been speaking with? Well, a big thing I heard was the timing um, of this announcement. President Biden was in Europe and he spoke in Poland and specifically praised the Polish people for how welcoming they have been to Ukrainian refugees. And they felt like the timing of this proposal was a slap in the face. The idea behind the rule is that the U.S. doesn't have enough capacity for all of these asylum seekers. But Nicole Ramos from the immigrant legal aid group Al Otro Lado in Tijuana doesn't think that's true. We see how quickly the U.S. government can act when we see how it responded to the arrival of 30,000 Ukrainians to the San Diego-Tijuana border last year. She says when the government ramped up to receive these Ukrainians, they were able to process about 1,000 people a day. Few of them were detained. Families weren't split up. And so she feels like the Biden administration is just choosing not to do the same thing with many nationalities. That's reporter James Frederick in Mexico City. James, thank you so much. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Thanks for joining us on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Josie Guarino. Start your week with WBUR tomorrow morning. Governor Mara Healey is about to release her first budget recommendation. We'll step through some of her priorities tomorrow. Wake up with Rupa Shinoy and NPR tomorrow on the radio and the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include Stanhope Framers, Back Bay, and Somerville, celebrating 50 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. StanhopeFramers.com. The time is 518, coming up at 6. It's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. In the forecast, gray skies for much of the night, low 20s. Tomorrow, snow moves in sometime after 8 p.m. and continues into the overnight hours and much of the day for Tuesday. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Wife of Wilsden at ART, a body new comedy by Zadie Smith, adapted from Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. Now through March 17th, amrep.org. And Janine Herbst with these headlines. At a high-level security meeting today, Israeli and Palestinian officials agreed to take steps to de-escalate tensions. At the same time, a Palestinian gunman killed two Israeli brothers and Palestinian officials. Say at least one Palestinian man was killed 
as Israeli settlers attacked Palestinians in the occupied West Bank. In Ukraine, heavy fighting is reported between Russian and Ukrainian forces in the eastern region of Donbas. For several months, forces have been battling for control of the town of Bakhmut. And a wooden boat crowded with migrants crashed against rocks off the southern coast of Italy this morning. At least 59 people died. At least 80 other people survived. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru, introducing the 2023 Solterra, an all-electric zero-emissions SUV with the standard capability of symmetrical all-wheel drive. Learn more at Subaru.com Solterra. And from Progressive Insurance, home of the Name Your Price tool, so drivers can see coverage options at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. The Federal Reserve has raised interest rates eight times over the last year. The Fed chair has said many times the goal is to rein in inflation. But a recent paper by a Federal Reserve economist argues that these rate hikes are also doing something else, making the wealth gap worse by pricing a number of low and moderate income Americans out of the housing market. We wanted to hear more about this, so we've called Derek Hamilton. He is a professor of economics and urban policy and director of the Institute on Race, Power, and Political Economy at the New School in New York City. Professor Hamilton, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I'm a big fan and admirer of your show. Oh, thanks for that. Okay, so first I'm going to ask you to give me the introductory class. Why are interest rates so critical when we're talking about things like inflation and the economic recovery broadly defined? Well, they drive up the cost of borrowing. So with higher interest rates, the amount that one has to pay in terms of debt financing rises. And as a result, they end up uh, pricing various people out of the market, particularly those people that don't have large capital foundations by which they begin. So a larger amount of the payment for the asset, like a home, is financed. And again, higher interest rates require that that cost that they have to pay for finance is higher. So it might not necessarily drive up the price of the asset, but it would drive up the cost of the money that you would borrow to buy it. That's exactly right. Okay. So earlier this year, a Federal Reserve economist named Daniel Ringo published a paper on monetary policy and inequality. I'm just going to read a little bit of it before I get your reaction. And obviously, I'm going to skip some of the sort of the technical terms that that a lot of us wouldn't, wouldn't use. But In the paper, he writes, quote, I find that tighter monetary policy leads to greater inequality in ownership, in contrast to the literature that finds reduced wealth inequality based on asset prices. The effects of homeownership on wealth take time to accumulate. So the influence of this access channel on wealth inequality would accrue only with a considerable 
lag. I think he's saying a couple things here. I think he's saying that higher interest rates leave a lot of low in, lower income people out of the housing market. And obviously that matters because this prevents them from accessing a major vehicle for wealth creation that's buying a home. I think he's saying that the Fed's idea is that if you raise interest rates, the prices will come down and that lower prices help everybody, that that's not necessarily the case. And I think he's saying that the people who are left out stay out. So is that about right? I mean, it really is. It, it is clear. Um, but, you know, I want to make sure we don't lose sight of the major problem by which we begin, which is the capital in the first place to purchase the asset. So as a result of not having that capital, you have to finance a bigger portion of the home purchase. And in the scenario, as described by the author, when there's higher interest rates, the cost of financing that purchase is higher. Hmm. And what about this this argument that, that he's saying that people who are left out stay out? I think what he's saying is that people who are left out often stay out, and that really does have long-term consequences for wealth inequality. Do you think that that's true? I do think it's true. And again, I want to be careful that we don't lose sight of what the core issue is, which is capital to begin with. But nonetheless, there are things we can do to make the problem worse. Uh, continuing to raise interest rates to the point that not only do we overshoot our target of price stability, but we do it in a way where the interest rate, which is a blunt instrument, is not considering some of the distributional impacts, such as the population that the author is talking about. The fact that uh, these low-income individuals now are pretty much locked out of the market because they can't get into it given how much it's going to cost to finance that home. So the issue of wealth inequality certainly isn't new, but for the people who care about this, they've cared about this for a long time now. But is there something about this moment and the Fed's response to it that makes this moment particularly notable that you think we should focus on or think about? Yeah, I mean, we've made advances so that the Fed, at least in their rhetoric, is starting to discuss the impact distributionally of their actions. And what do I mean by that? The impact on race, the impact on lower income populations. I don't think that's always been the case. Usually it's been very high level macro impacts. However, rhetoric is not enough. I, I think the Fed has to consider actions that they can do to uh, soften some of the distributional blows of a contractionary monetary policy so that when they are not even in a contractionary monetary period, even when they're in an expansionary monetary period, that their actions are also consistent with their rhetoric and ensuring that they're creating new wealth, providing mechanisms for people who have, as the author describes, been locked out, now have access. All that said, this is not the entire onus of the Fed, uh, but rather there needs to be fiscal policy from the government side, the federal government side, also to promote greater access to capital so that people can get into ownership of an asset. But one thing is for sure, uh, the political constraints on the federal government are less so for the Federal Reserve. They can take more uh, direct action without some of the political constraints that take place because of our partisan divide in America. So we've we've asked you to tell us what you know. So now I'm going to ask you to tell us what you think. I'm like, what would help right now from your perspective? I mean, recognizing, as you've just told us, policy always involves trade-offs. So inflation is still high. There's some evidence to suggest that it's slowing down a bit. But the you know Fed chair has made no secret of the fact that, you know, more rate hikes could be coming. If you were advising 
the Federal Reserve right now? What are things that you would advise to focus on to keep this very persistent, very high uh, wealth gap in mind? Yeah, I mean, in addition to interest rates, the Federal Reserve has a great deal of sway on banking in general. They have direct mechanisms to regulate banks and, and to even set terms for how banks uh, lend, engage in lending. So I would use some of that mechanism, some of that, that action step that they have in thinking about ways in which they can, even in a context of raising interest rates, ensure that capital, uh, that finance, and that terms of finance are being uh, distributed in a way to promote greater access to low-income people and you know, more racially inclusive policies so they can use that arm of how they regulate banks as a mechanism that they haven't conventionally, conventionally used but I, I dare say that we've seen precedent as a result of this pandemic of, of the ways in which they can engage with banks in distributing money and resources and capital to the American people. So we need to think creatively. We need to move beyond just the blunt instrument of interest rate hikes or decreases. And before we let you go, what about the Biden administration? Is there something that the administration could be doing, even as you as you pointed out, that the Fed is sort of designed to be insulated to a degree from kind of the momentary political and partisan pressures, but even recognizing, you know, President Biden, he's there are various obviously political influences weighing on him as well. What what do you do you have some advice for him? The Biden administration, as they get tied up in this new legislative moment, uh, which will tie their hands a little bit, I think through executive action and making sure that the already trillions of dollars of money that's coming our way through the IRA um, and through some of the other already financed federal programs, that they're administered in a way that is racially inclusive. That's economist Derek Hamilton. He's a professor of economics and urban policy at the New School in New York City. Professor Hamilton, thanks so much for sharing this expertise with us. Thank you very much. Last week, the world marked a year since Russia launched its full-on assault on Ukraine. February 24th is also the day, nine years ago, when Ukraine's Russian-backed president fled the country from Moscow following huge protests in Kyiv's Maidan Square. From Kyiv, NPR's Yulian Haida reports on the anniversary of Russia's first invasion and prelude to today's war. Nine years and some months ago, Kyiv's Independence Square, Maidan as locals call it, looked a lot like it does today. Eight lanes of traffic meet in a tangle of narrow medieval streets, acres upon acres of red brick sidewalks, abutting monumental granite buildings make pedestrians look like ants. Good to meet you. you. Likewise, yeah. This is where I meet Larissa Babi, a Ukrainian-American translator who's called Kyiv home since 2005. The area is surrounded by government buildings and high-end offices, a veritable power center in Ukraine. And that's exactly why, in November of 2013, Ukrainian activists chose this place to protest the decision by then-President Viktor Yanukovych to ditch a plan that would draw Ukraine closer to the European Union. Instead, Yanukovych wanted to move closer to Russia. Babi learned about the gathering on Facebook and told some of her friends. I'm going out to Maidan, and it was like, it was a very, like, kind of unsure thing, but I was like, no, I'm, I'm going to go there, and I came, and there was, you know, some dozens of people, maybe up to a 
couple hundred milling around. It was very quiet. For a week, she and others converged on the Maidan with a small but growing group of people. There were a lot of impromptu conversations between people, and they talked about politics. Politics in a really fundamental way, like, what are you doing here? What kind of a country do you want to live in? But as the crowds grew, so did the police presence. By the end of November, special forces shut it down. Men in helmets and armor overwhelmed the group, swinging batons. Nearly 100 people were injured, mostly college students and journalists. But within days, as many as a half million more people gathered on the square. I was there too. And back then I asked student protester Anastasia Kriviak why so many had suddenly showed up. People of all ages are standing here to make sure that the government just doesn't beat people, she said. That is our right. There's a threshold of abuse that is just simply too much, and they hit the streets and they demand change. That's Terrell Germain Starr, a political analyst who moved to Kyiv a few years before. He says the government's attempts to clear the area turned more and more violent over the following weeks and months, and the protests became entrenched. The movement wasn't so much about East-West politics anymore. It's one thing to say we're not going to go to the EU. It's another thing to see your child being beaten mercilessly and people dying. By February, nine years ago, this cycle of resistance and repression grew so violent that snipers shot and killed over 100 protesters on the Maidan. Today, Larissa Babi and I retrace the steps of those protesters as they marched on parliament and directly into sniper fire. The Maidan, like, it yeah. was meant to, we don't know exactly yeah. what it was meant to, but it toppled the government. Parliament voted to remove Yanukovych from office. And on February 24th, he fled Ukraine to Russia. In quick succession, Russia occupied parts of Ukraine. Their victory made Putin realize that he can no longer um, control Ukraine via puppet regime. That's Sophia Wilson, a political scientist at Southern Illinois University who has a forthcoming book on the movement's legacy. Depicting it as anti-Russia or pro-West is very misleading. Polls show people of Ukraine, well, they were not anti-Russia. They just said, we just want to live in a democracy. Since Maidan, entire government agencies were replaced. All of the country's cops were fired in a bid to end police brutality. For Larissa Babi, though, the Maidan is still unfinished business. If you look at how Ukraine is defending itself today and has been defending itself for the past year, that defense actually gives this Maidan meaning. Had Ukraine capitulated in February, March of last year, this Maidan would have been like eh, a little, you know, a little spark. But Ukraine did not capitulate, and Maidan's meaning endures. Yulian Haida, NPR News, Kyiv. Tomorrow on Morning Edition, a study of how apps like Instagram and TikTok affect the self-image of teenagers. Researchers ask teens to take a break from scrolling through social media. After just three weeks of reduced screen time, they reported feeling better about their looks and their bodies. Listen to Morning Edition tomorrow on your phone, your smart speaker, or just turn on your radio.
You're listening to NPR News. This week, the U.S. Supreme Court will hear arguments in two cases that will affect the financial lives of millions of Americans. They are two separate challenges to President Biden's plan to cancel at least $10,000 in federal student loan debt for most borrowers. NPR's Corey Turner is here with us to tell us more. Corey, thanks so much for joining us. You bet, Michelle. So what are we likely to hear this week? Well, let's start with the biggest question that's really at the heart of both of these cases. And that is, does the Biden administration have the legal power to erase student loan debts for tens of millions of Americans. Obviously, the Biden administration says yes, and their justification is a law known as the HEROES Act. So the HEROES Act was passed after the attacks of 9-11, and it specifically gives the education secretary the legal authority to basically waive or change the rules around the student loan program to help borrowers during a national emergency. And the administration is arguing, look, COVID was a national emergency that devastated the finances of many student loan borrowers. And it says broad forgiveness is a justified response to that emergency. The Trump administration also used this same authority to justify beginning and then extending the pause on student loan payments early in the pandemic. Although obviously there is a huge difference between pausing payments and outright erasing debts. So tell us the other argument, the argument that the administration does not have the legal authority to do this. So the Congressional Budget Office estimates this plan would cost somewhere around $400 billion. And so plaintiffs will argue that the HEROES Act simply does not authorize that kind of enormous debt forgiveness. And in that way, the law is kind of like, you know, that picture of the dress where some people see black and blue and some people see white and gold. Yes, I remember that. Yeah. (laughs) So this one sentence in this old HEROES Act law, it plays kind of like that dress. The plaintiff's attorneys are going to tell the Supreme Court justices that a government agency should not be allowed to act on this kind of grand scale without very clear language in the law created by Congress. And they'll also likely point out Congress has specifically refused to pass legislation to erase student debt on this scale. It's not enough for plaintiffs in either case to convince the court that the administration overreached here. They also have to convince the court that they have legal standing to bring a suit at all. That means they need to show that they would suffer some kind of concrete harm from Biden's debt relief plan. And it is worth noting on that count that one of these cases was actually thrown out by a lower court judge for this very reason until that decision was then reversed by an appeals court. As you pointed out at the very beginning, there are millions of people are waiting to figure out what's going to happen here. So when will when might we know? Yeah, it it has been tense for borrowers for many months and it could well be several more. The court is expected to announce its decision by early this summer and it's going to be a painful wait for a lot of people. You know, we know from the White House that roughly 16 million borrowers had already been fully approved for debt relief, and another 10 million were awaiting approval when the program was shut down by the courts. And again, we're talking about folks who qualify for either this basic $10,000 in relief or $20,000 for lower income borrowers. Student loan payments have been paused almost three years, and whatever comes out of this court decision, lots of folks are gonna have to resume payments probably later this summer. The administration says payments will resume 60 days after either the debt relief program is allowed to proceed or the litigation is resolved. That is NPR education correspondent Corey Turner. Corey, thank you so much. You're welcome, Michelle.
This is NPR News. Thanks for joining us on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Josie Guarino in Boston. In sports, in a preseason baseball game this afternoon, the Red Sox beat the Rays 7-6. The Sox play again tomorrow afternoon against the Minnesota Twins. In the forecast, gray skies for much of the evening, low 20s. Tomorrow, a cloudy start. Then snow moves in sometime after 8 p.m. tomorrow night, and it continues into the overnight hours and for much of the day for Tuesday. The Boston area could see 2 to 5 inches of snow. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Federal workers are going door-to-door in East Palestine, Ohio this weekend to address residents' concerns over the train derailment three weeks ago that was carrying hazardous materials. More strikes and protests are expected in Portugal this week by workers demanding higher pay and better working conditions. A four-day strike against the railroads is scheduled to start tomorrow, and school employees are camped outside Parliament in the capital, Lisbon, in the latest of several large protests. And at the weekend box office, Marvel's Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, held on to the top spot with an estimated $32 million. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the candidate search process. Businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates, all from the employer dashboard. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. Hollywood generally takes a breather in January and February. That pause gives awards contenders time to play out before the Oscars. And audiences get a chance to catch up with holiday attractions. But as Marvel superheroes Ant-Man and the Wasp are proving, moviegoers are also looking for something new. In his spring movie preview, NPR's Bob Mondello says there will be lots of new in theaters before Memorial Day. New, let's note, is in the eye of the beholder, and Hollywood is doing the beholding, so brace yourself for lots of brand new sequels. Introducing the star of our show, his name is Shazam! Shazam 2 brings the return of an accident-prone teen superhero. I don't deserve these powers, if I'm being honest. Like, what am I even contributing? Then there's Volume 3 of another superhero saga. The galaxy still needs its guardians. And we'll kill anyone who gets in our way. No, not kill anyone. Kill a few people. Kill no people. Kill one guy, one stupid guy who no one loves. Now you're just making it sad. Speaking of sad, there's the rival boxer in Creed 3. Try spending half your life in a cell. Watching somebody else live your life. 
I'm coming for everything. You threatening me? And in John Wick chapter four. I'm going to need a gun. It's our hero who says. You and I left a good life behind a long time ago, my friend. Book club, the next chapter will strike a lighter note. Rome, I love this city. I love anything that's falling apart more than I am. Scream six, a more horrific one. And presumably faster and more furious than all of them, Fast 10. You want to see the old Don? Watch. None of this striking you as particularly new? Well, the one would-be blockbuster that's actually new is really seriously old. In the sci-fi thriller 65, Adam Driver pilots a spacecraft. My ship was hit by an undocumented asteroid. Send help. Unlikely for an equally unlikely reason. We've crash-landed on an uncharted celestial body. That uncharted celestial body is Earth. The title 65 is for 65 million years ago. With all the raptors and T-Rexes, that suggests. That is a lot of action for one season, but there are quieter movies coming too, like Paint, a comedy about a public television personality. It's hard not to feel a little lost as we begin. Played by Owen Wilson. Just take it all in. He's a painter on TV, soothing, mellow, walking you through every brushstroke until one day he has competition. Hi, friends, and welcome to Paint with Ambrosia. It takes paint to a whole new place. He didn't want to go to a whole new place. You're entitled to your favorite TV show. It's what makes this country great. Even more low-key, the drama A Good Person, in which survivor guilt meets opioid addiction, meets grief counseling with Morgan Freeman. Allison, don't run away now because of me. There are thousands of meetings. I'll find another one. Well, somehow you found your way to this one. Also trying to rebuild shattered lives, Tim Roth as an alcoholic former boxer with a gay son in Punch. I set up your first professional fight. It's your big break. Dad, I've got a life. And Jake Gyllenhaal in The Covenant as a soldier who owes his life to an Afghan interpreter left behind by America's withdrawal. There is a hook in me. Ahmed and his family are in trouble. We can't intervene. I am gonna have to get him out myself. Am I making spring movies sound downbeat? Because they mostly aren't. They just center on a lot of conflict. Even comedies, say the one about a longtime grudge that unites Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin, though not as Grace and Frankie. It's called Moving On, which is what Fonda's character is having trouble with. Evelyn, I need to talk to you. About what? I told him I was gonna kill him. I could chat. It takes a court order to turn Woody Harrelson into a less conflict-oriented basketball coach in Champions. I will offer you community service. Coaching adults with intellectual disabilities. Okay, fellas, we're gonna do a simple ball handling exercise. My girlfriend loves this. Conflict follows a beautiful psychologist in San Francisco when she relocates across the bay in a snowy day in Oakland. Why would somebody smart enough to be a doctor want to put a headshot in this neighborhood? What's wrong with this neighborhood? It's full of black people. Black people don't talk about their problems. A different psychological approach informs the vampire comedy Renfield, starring the Knicks, Holt, and Cage. Nicholas Holt shows up at a group therapy session with a problem. I need to get out of a toxic relationship. The problem is his boss, controlling, oppressive. You can't get him out of your head. No. What they don't know is how literally Renfield means that. But if you were to stop focusing on his needs, what would happen? He won't grow to full power. Exactly. He won't grow to full power. What? That's so weird. Why would you phrase it like that? But yes. Enter his boss, played by Nicolas Cage. Are you here for the meeting? 
Well, come on! No! No! I am Baraktion. Okay, obviously we're dealing with a little bit more than just narcissism here. There are also comedies for younger viewers, an adaptation of Judy Bloom's classic novel of a 12-year-old who grows up in an interfaith family. Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. That's the title. Cue the sixth grade mortification. I'm here to speak to you today about your changing bodies. There's also the animated kid flick, Mummies, which brings some ancient Egyptians to... The world of the living. You're not alone. You have a team. And that third adaptation of Nintendo's Super Mario Brothers, the world's been waiting for. Come on, Mario! Our big adventure begins now! Ah, get it off, get it off, get it off! Happily, there is a corner of the multiplex that'll be devoted to more down-to-earth fare, biopics and stories based on real life. The Lost King, for instance, about the amateur sleuth who went searching for Britain's Richard III. I'd like to visit his grave. There isn't one. His mortal remains are lost to history. I know I can find him. Also Chevalier, the story of a black 18th century composer who charmed Marie Antoinette, but not her court. Any other country, man of your color would not be wearing such fine clothes. One day, the whole world will know me. And of course the music will be spectacular. Two centuries later, as the film Spinning Gold chronicles, the place to find music you'd call spectacular was Casablanca Records, which had contracts with... Yes, the Isley Brothers, Gladys Knight. Parliament, Bill Withers, Donna Summer. They legally changed my name. No! Everything is hotter in summer. There's also a biopic about the rise and fall and rise of heavyweight champion George Foreman. Last time they saw me, I looked like Superman. So now you look like the Michelin Man. This ain't no beauty contest. And Air, the starriest true story, bringing together Viola Davis, Ben Affleck, and Matt Damon, is what you might call a product biopic of the shoe that made Nike, back when all the company had was a swoosh. People don't know what the hell a Nike is. What's a Converse? NBA All-Star shoe. So if the competition had the All-Stars, maybe think outside the box. A rookie. Yes. Who's never set foot on an NBA court. If that's the literal definition of rookie. But what a rookie. Who's the player? Michael Jordan. A star in the making, a topic Hollywood knows a little something about. Also branding, which will be very big in Hollywood summer, Indiana Jones, Mission Impossible, Pixar, but let's save those for next time. I'm Bob Mandela. Got a name for it? Air Jordan. I don't know. Seriously? Maybe it'll grow on me. And finally today, new music from Australian singer-songwriter Jen Clower. If you want to be my witch, lay it on me, be the ride you hitch when you hit that perfect pitch. That's the song My Witch, which is not quite safe for work, but okay. And it's from her upcoming album, I Am The River, The River Is Me. She joined us to talk about some of the standout tracks. She you gonna make me sweat. Give me what you got, what you want to get. Pull me in and hold me down. Show me with a look what you're going to do now, honey. My Witch is very different to any kind of song that I've written before. I mean, it's quite blatantly about a sexual encounter. And I wasn't actually sure at the time whether this song would make it onto the album, just because it's so different to the rest of the material. Baby, won't you take it slow? It feels immediately fresh. It feels catchy. 
it's in your ear straight away. There's this sense of intimacy, like the person singing, me, is sort of telling you something that no one else needs to know. Honey, there ain't no shame in getting what you want, gotta give it a name, it's more than a feeling. The album recording process was a really different one for me on this album. I was on tour in 2020, like many artists. That was cut short halfway, so we spent a lot of time at home. That actually worked in my favour because I had been planning to write a new album and all of a sudden I had months ahead of me that were free of social obligations and free of any kind of work obligations. So it gave me this opportunity for the first time in my life, really, to just focus on songwriting. I am the river is me. I am the river, the river is me, is taken from a Māori proverb, what's known as a whakatauki. And in Te Reo Māori, we would say, kawau te awa, kou te awa kawau. It's the idea that we are part of. I am the river, the river is me. We're not separate. We are part of this beautiful, beautiful planet that we are living on collectively, all together in this moment. My mother's side of the family are the indigenous people of Aotearoa, New Zealand known as the Māori, and so I started to learn te reo Māori. Those words and some of those phrases and thoughts, feelings and ideas started to creep into my songwriting. It wasn't something that I had ever planned or expected and I just went with it. I thought, okay, let's see where this leads us. I am not a protest song, don't represent anyone, I don't even know myself. Oh yeah, so protest song is is a big song. I think a lot of artists, a lot of songwriters, writers, people in the public eye who are used to putting work out in into the into the public domain. Over the pandemic, I think we were all really challenged with, you know, what am I saying? You know, why am I writing? What is my purpose? Why do I write music? One night after the show, a woman came backstage. Burst through the door crying, said we need to do something. I nodded and felt helpless like I often do How do I put in words the hell we just went through That particular song references an experience that I had after the huge bushfires that swept through Australia at the end of 2019 into 2020 and I know the world was aware of the havoc um, that was caused by those fires. Billions of our native animals um, were, were destroyed in the fires and we lost so many important 
parts of ecosystems or entire ecosystems. What do I care about? What are the things I love? But it really got me thinking, you know, what is the role of the artist? Something that Nina Simone said that really struck me was the artist's responsibility is to reflect the times that they live in. And I love that she says responsibility, not role, not ambition, uh, not something that you should aim for, but your responsibility to reflect the times that you live in. The title of the song, He Tokatu Moana, is Stand Steadfast Like a Rock in the Ocean. There's also in the chorus, Kia Mokwe Kinga Kupu, Ao Tato Tupuna, which means hold fast to the words of your ancestors. The reason why I moved between English and Te Reo Māori is because that's where I find myself. I'm not fluent in my native tongue. I'm slowly learning it. And so it feels honest to have bits of it in there and bringing my native tongue into my music. This is my fifth album and it's the first time I've ever had the confidence to do that. And it's really opened my life up in ways that I couldn't have imagined. That was Jen Clower previewing a few tracks from her fifth and newest album, I Am the River and the River Is Me. For Sunday, that's all things considered from NPR News. Before we leave you today, we wanted to say a word about someone whose name you probably haven't heard before, but we want you to hear it now. Because for every voice you hear on the air or every byline you read online, there are so many other people working to make our work the best it can be. One of the most important jobs of a journalist is to get it right, and one of the people whose job was to 